6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Misser completes his session entitled, The Prehistorical Record. And in first, Second Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, it says, For we know that if our, if our earthly house of this tabernacle, meaning our bodies, were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. That word house there again is Ogaterian. So that which houses us. See, the real you is not physical. You're, you're temporally resident in a body. The real you, call it soul, spirit, give it what vocabulary you like, is software, not hardware, and is eternal, whether you're saved or not. We'll talk about that later. But okay, so all this leads up, of course, to underscore what we looked at last time when God declares war on Satan. He says, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So there's two seeds. There's this whole biblical thing is a conflict between two seeds. The seed of the woman, which is the title of Jesus Christ, and the seed of the serpent, which we'll see is the red dragon, Satan, the coming world leader, the false prophet, really a trilogy of personages that we'll see develop as we go further on. And these same forces are behind world powers today. And we get a great lesson in that when we get to Daniel chapter 10. But let's get back to the flood of Noah. A lot of talk about the flood. The ark is, people say there wasn't room in all the ark for all the species. The guy that says that, number, there's two things he doesn't know. He doesn't know how big the ark was, and he doesn't know how many species are involved. So it's, but you come to the conclusion very quickly, well, couldn't it fit? Well, wait a minute, let's talk about it a little bit. The ark was 300 cubits long and 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. That turns out to be a very big box. Very big box. If we assume that a cubit, which is classically from the elbow to the fingertip, if we assume it's about 18 inches, that would make this thing about 450 feet long, 70 feet wide, and 45 feet high. It would have a displacement then of approximately 24,000 tons, 1.4 million cubic feet, or roughly equivalent to over 500 railroad cars. That's a lot of railroad cars. I saw recently some people made a, a model of this to scale to HO scale. And it's, I forget, it must have been uh, 8, 10 feet long. And you put a HO, it's HO scale, put a train by side. It's shocking to realize how big this thing actually is. But it's worse than that. That's the calculation that most people use because they use a cubit of 18 inches. And by the way, you could put in that 125,000 sheep, 
and probably room for about 18,000 species, according to some anthropological experts. But let's assume that that cubit could be as big as 25 inches. There's arguments that it could be, the, the length of a cubit is debated among some scholars for a number of reasons. If it's 25 inches, you're talking 625 feet long, 104 feet wide, 63 feet high. You're talking 65,000 tons. That displaces more than the Wisconsin, the Missouri battleships, by the way. 4 million cubic feet, 1,400 railroad cars in size. And realize that the average size of an animal is small. There's a few big ones. You might get babies for that. But the point is animals are not that large. And you're talking about 340,000 sheep, for example, in 18,000 species. So, and the, the dimensions are rather interesting. If you have an advanced, I'm a Naval Academy graduate, if you have some, some uh, uh, engineering behind you, you'll be startled to discover that this 50 by 30 dimension, you have a center of gravity and you have a center of buoyancy. And as that thing tips, the center of gravity and the center of buoyancy are offset. And that's what would, but that would cause it to, because they're offset, the tendency would be to balance it. You see, it would have a tendency to be stable. As long as the uh, center of buoyancy and the center of gravity are offset, the center of buoyancy is causing this to get right side. This is intrinsically stable. In its simplicity, uh, there's some genius behind it. No surprise. The flood itself rained for 40 days, and this is not just rain because the fountains of the deep were also opened up. Waters prevailed for 150 days. They were in the ark 371 days, five months floating, and then seven months on the mountain. By the way, it's interesting. We know that at the end of the 371 days, they had the same number of animals. None died, none were born. They didn't have multiplication taking place, so we presume that God hibernated them. And uh, so that's, that's just, there's all kinds of books and conjectures. It's interesting that this story of the flood is embodied in the legends and folklore of all the ancient traditions. Egyptian, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Hindu, Chinese, the Druids of all people, the Polynesians, the Mexicans, the Peruvians, the American Indians, and in Greenland. They all have stories of the flood. Was it universal or local? Some strange debates among Bible scholars in this one. We know that every living thing was destroyed. This is not a local flood. All high mountains under the entire heavens were covered, according to Genesis 7. The ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. I want you to notice that word is plural. We're going to get back to that in a minute. Mountains, more than one. But here's the key thing for me as I get in these debates with Hugh Ross and others about is it local or universal. God promised Noah that he would never do that again. And his symbol of that promise was the rainbow. Well, if God promised never to have a local flood again, he hasn't kept his promise. In other words, that promise, that, that statement has meaning in the sense of a widespread universal flood. That's what God promised he would not do again. But you always need to read the fine print. Next time it won't be with water. It'll be with fire, as Peter points out in his letter. 
There are a lot of questions you want to ask your scientific experts. Why were the dinosaurs, um, uh, were they quickly drowned and buried? Uh, mammoths quickly drowned in North Africa and quick frozen in Siberia. Petrified forests were found 100 miles from the South Pole by Admiral Byrd. Land animals were found fossilized in locations below sea level. And sea animals were found fossilized at high elevations. So these are all questions that you start exploring. You can answer if you understand there was a universal flood at one time. Let's talk about fossils. You hear so much nonsense about people who don't know what they're talking about, about fossils. The first thing you want to know about fossils is that they're dead. Any debates about that? If they're dead, that means they are post-Adam. They are after Adam. Period. Fossils have no decay. If a, if a fish dies, it either floats or let's say it even falls in the bottom, it decays. You don't get a nice, clean, crisp fossil. What causes a fossil? Sudden death, sudden pressure, sealing it. Sudden, quick change is what causes a fossil, not a gradual sedimentary decay. The dating of fossils, of course, is utter nonsense. Oh, I got a fossil here, it's 140 million years old. Really, how do you know? Because it's in a layer where the other fossils are 140 million years old. Oh, really? How do you know they're 140 million? Because they're in that layer. <laughs> really? The lights are on, but no one's home. Right, okay. <laughs> and why do we not have fossils today? Because it was a catastrophic event in the past. There are two big theories. I'm not going to get into great detail. I just want you to be aware that they're around. A very common theory is what's called the canopy theory. The whole idea that it was at atmospheric water shield that protected the Earth from cosmic radiation. There's good evidence for some of that. And therefore, there were longer lifetimes before the flood because they were shielded from radiation, which causes the lifetimes to be longer, is one of the conjectures. The water falls complementing the subterranean waters that were also unleashed for the flood. Then continental drift occurred uh, from the fractured land masses. And all this is developed rather extensively by the Institute of Creation Research in San Diego, prompted by Henry Morris and John C. Whitcomb's book in 1961, The Genesis Record. There are very many good, competent scholars that embrace this theory. There's some competent scholars that have a little different view. And there are some geological mysteries about the Grand Canyon. How did it really get its origin? There's all stories about that. How did we get mid-oceanic -oce mountain ranges? The submarine canyons and the, uh, uh, these all raise issues. The magnetic variations on the ocean floor tell a tale. The coal and oil formations have some mysteries to them. The fact that we have frozen mammoths in Siberia raises all kinds of questions. I don't want to get into all this here for this quick survey, but also that these, the, uh, this jigsaw fit of continents and the rest of it. There is another theory that is very, very uh, provocative to me, and that's the hydroplate theory, where these, we had interconnected continents, they had subterranean water, the pressure of that, the increasing pressure of that water caused horizontal buckling and eruptions. And this explains a great deal of the surface of the Earth. And I won't take the time to try to develop this here, but if you're interested in this, 
Walt Brown's organization, Center for Scientific Creation in Phoenix, Arizona, has well-developed excellent materials in this area for your exploration. But in any case, the, as I say, the flood rained for 40 days, not just rain. The water prevailed for 150 days. They're in the ark for 377 days. And uh, here's, the, here's some perspectives of the story. There's only one ark, by the way. And I think God did that purposely. You know why? Because there's only one way that you can survive His judgment. And there's only one door, there's only one ark, and there's only one door in that ark. And who closed the door to the ark? God did, you betcha. It's interesting, there are no births or nor deaths on the ark, but all in the ark were saved. I think the Holy Spirit emphasized that. And by the way, something else, alternative theological speculations ended when that door was shut. So if you want to be saved, you do it before the door is shut. And the, door will, the day is coming when that door will be shut. There are only three groups of people involved in that flood. Those that perished in the flood, of course. Those that were preserved through that flood, of course. And there's a third group. Those that were removed prior to the flood. Enoch was not post-flood or mid-flood. He was pre-flood, okay? So those of you that want to apply that to eschatology can run with that one. And I've talked about the different traditions of the flood, the Egyptian, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Hindu, Greenland, American Indian, and so forth. Okay. And Noah enters the ark. Seven days later, the rain begins. Four days later, heavy rain stop. 110 days later, the waters recede. The ark rests in Ararat. Seventy-four days later, the mountaintops are visible. Forty days later, the raven is sent out, and uh, it doesn't come back. Then the dove number one is sent out, and he returns. Dove number two is sent and returns with the leaf. Dove number three is sent and does not return, which means it's ready to go. And twenty-two days later, the water receded. Noah saw the dry land, and the land is completely dry. The ark's exited. And it turns out that this is 377 days from the beginning. So that's a quick profile for those of you that are you get a little better perspective of the 377 days aboard the ark. But something else, the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. Now, if you're a normally normal, well-adjusted human being and you read that, you read on. But if you've been to one of the Chuck Missler's Bible studies, you are no longer a normal, well-adjusted human being. Because you'll remember that Chuck said, gee, Chuck said uh, everything in the Scriptures by, deliberately by the Holy Spirit. Well, why did the Holy Spirit want you to know that the ark came to rest in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on Mount Zerat? When did the new world begin? When the ark came to rest. So why did the Holy Spirit want you to know the very date? Let's take a look at this. The Jews have two calendars. Uh, most of us are familiar with the civil calendar which starts with the first of Tishri. That's in the fall, typically, Rosh Hashanah. We just went through that not long ago. But they also have a religious calendar that starts at Nisan, which is in the springtime. Because um, even though in Genesis, of course, Tishri was the first of the year, when you get to Exodus, God is going to institute the Passover. But in the second verse of chapter 12 of Exodus, says, this month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So this gives them another calendar, the religious calendar. It's in Nisan. Now what's interesting, 
On the old calendar, Tishri was the first month, Nisan was the seventh. But on the religious calendar, Nisan is the first month, and Tishri is the seventh. Okay, you follow me so far? There they're compared on the screen. Okay. Well, let's take a look at this. Let's talk about new beginnings. Jesus Christ was, of course, crucified, found Passover, the 14th of Nisan. How long was Jesus in the grave? Anyone? Three days. And we're going to talk a lot about chronology when we get to the New Testament, but let's leave it for this. So, so that means that uh, the resurrection occurred on what? The 17th of Nisan, right? Which is the seventh month of the Genesis calendar. You with me? So it's interesting to me that our, the new beginning on the planet Earth was on the anniversary in advance of our new beginning in Christ. I think that's kind of neat. In other words, the, the ark came to rest, the new world started, the new beginning, on the anniversary in advance in anticipation of our new beginning, which in effect occurs at the Feast of First Fruits when Christ was raised from the dead. Kind of fun stuff. But something else I want you to notice in this verse, Genesis 8 4. The ark rested in the seventh month on the seventeenth day of month upon the mountains of Ararat. That's plural. That's plural. Ararat is not a mountain, it's a region of mountains. That's what this in effect says. If you go to Turkey, there's a place called Mount Ararat, and there are dozens of people who have claimed to have seen the ark up there somewhere, but it never gets corroborated. Bob Cornuke is the only investigator that's looking for the ark that hasn't seen it. <laughs> if you go through the literature, almost everybody that was interested in the ark claims to have seen it or gotten a piece of wood or this or that. If you start checking, trying to check those stories out, you'll be in an exercise of frustration. One of the disturbing ob observations is the Mount Ararat is alone in Turkey. It's a mountain there. It was named by Marco Polo in the 15th century. And so it is traditionally where it located, but I'm always suspicious of traditions in the first place. Let's link to the Word of God. In Genesis chapter 11, it says the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. It goes on then, of course, about the Tower of Babel and so forth. But in verse 2, it says, It came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they're going to build Babel and Babylon and all that. But I want you to notice they came from where? The east. Well, let's take a look at a map here. Uh, there's Mount Ararat in Turkey, up there north. There's Babel, or present-day Babylon. And you'll notice that it's almost due north, slightly northwest, slightly northwest of Babel. You with me so far? If I'm going to take the text and look for Mount Ararat, I've got to find a place that they would get to Babel coming from the east, according to Genesis 11:2, which means I've got to look somewhere in the north and the, in the mountain regions of Iran. And we are searching with satellites, and when we find some justification and can we make the arrangements, 
I suspect that we'll take a look at that, and it would not surprise me if somebody, whoever it is, will discover the Ark of Noah. I think it will be found, for I have some reasons why I suspect that, but I think it'll be found in Iran, not in Turkey. So that's just a conjecture, but I'll leave, let you alert to that because it could be in the news in the coming years. Okay. New beginning in Genesis 9. They come out now. They're not vegetarians anymore. Capital punishment is ordained in Genesis 9. Human government is established. Sinful man is wiped out, but not sin. And uh, Noah has a prophecy about uh, Japheth, one of the three sons, his th and we dwell in the sense of Shem. We'll talk about that later. It's interesting, we profiled in, in the early chapters of Genesis the uh, entropy decreases, the, the, the improvement of order, until we get to the seventh day where there is no Erev, no Boker, there is no change in entropy. There is, of course, a huge gain in entropy at the fall of Adam. We talked about that last time. But there is another drop in toward, towards disorder after the flood of Noah. Everything we know about the creation of the universe is from observations that are post-fall, post-after the fall of Adam. But all the observations we know about the planet Earth involve investigations of the Earth as it has occurred since the flood. And the flood of Noah was far more than just a lot of water. And we know the thermal blanket was gone, if there was one, the end of the universal climate, which was apparently extant beforehand. Atmospheric pressure was reduced at least 50% because it, at the present rate, pterodactyls could not fly. Pterodactyls would require an atmosphere of twice what we have now. The extended longevities, of course, also decline from that point on. These long lifetimes and so forth. And of course, the fossils we talked about, uh, they also tell the same story. And why are there none today? Well, let's shift now to, to another chapter before we close off our unit here, chapter 10, the Table of Nations. Chapter 10 lists the descendants of the three sons of Noah. Noah had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. From Japheth came a whole bunch of sons. Uh, the one You're going to want to know some of these because that's the label by which those ethnic strings are alluded to in the Bible. We're going to talk a lot about Magog when we get to Ezekiel and so forth. Ham has some sons, Cush, Mithraim, Put, and Canaan. Mithraim is the biblical term for Egypt. Cush and Put, these really, this really speaks of Africa. Cush, Black Africa, and Put, what we would consider as North Africa, and so forth. And of course the Canaanites, uh, sons of Ham. And then we have the sons of Shem. Elam, which are the Persians, and others. We're not going to go through all of these, but if you're going to be diligent, you're going to want to get a little feeling for some of these backgrounds. Shem is included Elam. Shem's the important one because of our Faxad, who had Salah, who had Eber, who had Peleg, and it was in the days of Peleg that the earth was divided whatever that turns out to mean, and some others. But it's from Peleg that we have a whole string that we finally get to Terah and Abraham. And Abraham, of course, is a key player from chapter 12 for the rest of the Bible. So we'll watch that when we get there. Shem had 26 listed in, in Genesis. Ham had 30, and Japheth 14 for a total of 70 families 
that derive from Noah. Very important number, interestingly enough, because we have 70 nations from Noah under Ham, Shem, and Japheth. We discover that 70 families of Abraham will enter Egypt in Genesis 46. And the boundaries of them, according to the Scripture, are set. So it's interesting that these 70 are deliberately linked by the Holy Spirit. The table of nations, 70. And there are 66 in Genesis 46 and 70 in Genesis 47. And in the book of Acts, it mentions 75. Some people get confused by this. But see, the reason we have 66, we have four missing there, because Jacob, Joseph, and his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, were already counted. So there's actually 70 total that went down to Egypt. Joseph also has five grandsons that happen to be included because of the Septuagint issue in Acts 7. So these things do, act, strangely enough, reconcile. Whenever you think there's a non-reconciliation, you rejoice, because when you start studying it, you'll make some new discoveries. So we have a deliberate linking in Deuteronomy of the 70 nations in the table of nations in Genesis 10 and the 70 families of the nation Israel. They're in juxtaposition by the Holy Spirit deliberately. But one of these guys from Ham is a guy by the name of Nimrod, whose name means rebel. He's the first world dictator. We're going to talk a lot about him when we get later. He was the founder of Babylon and Nineveh. So he's a heavy dude. In Genesis 11, of course, they build this famous Tower of Babel. There's one language at the time called Hebrew, by the way. But there's a godless confederacy under the first world dictator, a guy by the name of Nimrod. And in the plain of Shinar, he builds Babel, the Tower to Heaven, basically an astrological temple. And it is, in effect, a corruption of what they call the Zodiac, what the Hebrews call the Matzeroth. And there's a whole story behind that that we'll spare you at this point. But you can look at the Bible as a tale of two cities. The city of man, or the city of Satan, if you want to call it that, Babylon, and the city of God, Jerusalem. And these two are in juxtaposition from Genesis, and they reach their climax in the book of Revelation, where Babylon is destroyed finally, and Jerusalem is replaced by the city of God, the New Jerusalem. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.